It's extra drama for book number 35, Out of Control. Or better phrased, extra time. Extra time? Like at the end of a soccer game. See, I know a little bit about soccer. And there's no one better in extra time than Aaron Dallas. <laughs> I guess that's true. In uh, in book number 35, Aaron Dallas is the soccer star. Sam Brandt is here with me again. And Sam, uh, first of all, thank you for joining me again. Thank you. <laughs> Secondly, one of the things that I thought would be fun, well, full disclosure, one of the reasons I asked you to do this book specifically is because this is a boy book. And you are a boy. <laughs> not, to, not to gender these things, um, but it's the 80s, so we're, we're... Things were more gendered in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, but also, we talked in the main episode about you being an Oregonian, but also you are a big soccer fan. Am I right? You are right. I'm putting words in your mouth. Is that am I right the one word or the three word version? Well, you, it's up to you. No, either way. Okay. <laughs> Just how do you visualize that in your head? I was thinking it is three separate words. Okay. The grammatically correct way sure sure but i feel like there's a certain style to am i right am i right yeah yes yeah there's a certain uh tenuous egotism involved in the phrase am i right please elaborate this is not where i thought this episode was going but i'm very eager to know what you're talking about (laughs) well it's just uh if you want confirmation and you want it quickly that's why you condense these words together am i right well, yeah, because if some when you say "Am I right?" you are probably not expecting to hear "No, you are not right." Yeah, it comes with uh, loaded expectations. Um, I was actually just listening to another podcast where uh, that's out of the UK, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about this phrase. Somebody said a sentence, and they said, um, "Aren't there?" at the end of it, like, well, or like, isn't it? Aren't you know? In it. Yeah, at the end of the phrase, and it was like, the point of that was to, was not actually to ask a question. It was just to to say, yes, they are. A confirmational tag. Right. Um, so you you do like soccer. That's I do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what did you think of the way soccer was portrayed in uh, Out of Control? The sport was hardly displayed at all. I mean, what was displayed more accurately was the sentiments experienced off the field behind the scenes and how fans react in the week leading up to a game with with what the press has to say about their players. So I think this is what is compelling about this is that it's a uh, exciting portrayal of this triangle that exists between the players, the media, and the fans. And you really get into that, and that's what drives the the plot. Yeah, especially toward the end. So the media, of course, represented by Elizabeth. The players, Aaron Dallas. And the rest of... And Chicago. Jeffrey. And Jeffrey. And Jeffrey as a secondary character. Yeah. Um, can you think of any, like, real-world examples of something like this happening? Well, I just think it, it's this... Uh, in in sports, you have so many actors involved in making a team possible. The players, the coaches, the management, the, the non-sporting management, but like financial and so forth. 
and uh, the fans and the press. And they all have competing interests, different ways of articulating what it is they do. And sometimes those can be very much at odds with each other. And in a country like England, it's often the press's job to go out and expose these players and shame them. And that creates a, an undue amount of stress. And it can also divide a fan base, depending on how they feel about a particular player. Well, when you say it's the press's job, do you mean that they are just reporting honestly, and in the honest reporting, negative things come out? Or that they are trying to, like, slander the team somehow? Both both of those things are true. I mean, you, you have great investigative journalists uncovering hard truths about what what happens behind a team, whether it's something like a, a doping scandal or other forms of corruption. Um, but for every one of those, you also have journalists, if you can call them that, whose pure job is to sell back page fodder of um, often spurious details about players' personal lives and, and mm. things like that. Oh, well, that's interesting since, in a way, Elizabeth is both kinds of journalists for the Oracle. I think it's one of the strangest details of this whole series is that Elizabeth is very dedicated to being uh, an honest journalist, to being, uh, having a future as a journalist, or as Mm. a writer at least. But her most steady, regular, and most referenced gig for the newspaper is as um, the once secret but now publicly known writer of this eyes and ears gossip column in the newspaper where she, I mean, it's a good thing as we've said on the show before, it's a good thing that Elizabeth is the person who's in that role because she could be the most um, honest about it or the least like backstabby or calculating, but it's still like, why does this column even exist in the, in the high school newspaper? Well, part of it is comic relief. I guess so, but it's not funny. I don't think it would be that funny if you were one of the people being gossiped about, unless it was something you wanted people no, to know. No, I mean, comic relief to the reader of the book. Oh, Just sure. like one of, these, uh, one of these recurring things. As you would okay. see, like, in a comic relief in, in British newspapers, like the Metro that you pick up on, on your commute on the tube or on the train every day, and the Rush Hour Crush column. I think any of pseudonyms about often preposterous things that happen, but it's nice to have that comic relief amidst all of these serious dramas. Yeah, very serious in this case. Yeah. Um, so... To, to the lady at the quick stop buying seven pints of pistachio <laughs> ice cream. Yeah, <laughs> Next time you want to share half of those with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, the other thing about this book that... I think is worth interrogating a little bit is the player himself, Aaron Dallas. Yes. And the way that he is acting in the book and the way that the sort of system around him is allowing him or not allowing him to behave. Um, Did that seem realistic to you? Um, no, I don't know if it matters in these books whether anything seems realistic or not. Fair, fair. But I do think, I mean, having read this for the first time, one of these books, it's an interesting window into a idealized California 
society, mm -hmm. society or community, um, in the 1980s. And these institutions and spaces in which the socialization takes place, like the soccer field. Um, be interesting if you would have similar plot at all if this was about girls soccer. Are there are there any of the books that talk about girls soccer or other sports? Or the sports plots always I around think, boys? I know that there was a book eventually called Ms. Quarterback about a girl oh. who plays on the boys, of course, boys football team. Um, American high schools still don't have girls football teams. Um, one thing, I mean, in terms of soccer, I thought it was, a book actually kind of points out mm -hmm. that it's sort of weird that they care so much about soccer at all. Like, there's a passing line where someone says, like, who would have thought that Sweet Valley High would go soccer crazy? Mm -hmm. So, to me, I read that as, especially in, you know, the mid-80s, soccer was not necessarily, a, like, a super popular sport that people got really crazy about. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think one of the things I wonder in here is the context. So... What time of year is this taking place? Is is it only po popular because it's not during football season or basketball season? Yeah. Sorry, I only laugh because that's the perpetual question of, of anything that happens in Sweet Valley High is like, when is it? Maybe that's one of the reasons why it's set in California is because, you know, you could look out the window right now and be like, when is it? It's been kind of cold lately, but like not today. And so it's like, is it April? Is it... December? Is it October? No, it's January. Um, Gladiators, it'll be February when you're listening to this, but similarly in these books, it's like, when are we? Like, did spring break happen already? Or is it about to be Christmas vacation? Nobody knows, because... Are there Christmas books? There are special Christmas books. They take place sort of separately as, like, special edition books. Halloween, 4th of July... Um, 4th of July, yes. Halloween, we haven't gotten to any yet that involve Halloween, which is a shame, because Halloween seems like it'd be pretty interesting. Oh, in lots of, lots of drama. Yeah, unless I'm just forgetting, which is possible, but... What about graduation? Oh, no, they can't graduate. No, but what if they're, like, looking at the seniors who are graduating and feeling... I don't know how that would work. Feeling feelings about Yeah, I think that would be interesting, but... They, I think they try to shy away from it, there being time, the passage of time at all, just because it's perpetual junior year. So. I mean, even within the book itself, I guess it this does fairly clearly take place over the course of the week, but you don't feel time as a weight in the yeah, plot. Yeah, that's here. true. You know what? I was just thinking that there's not really a party in this book. The only party... Tupperware party. Yeah, the Tofu Glow party is the only is the closest thing to a party that, that happens in the book. That, that's where it's at. <laughs> no, it's not. It's terrible. Have you ever been to one of those parties, like a multi-level marketing party? I can't say I have. Well, I'm not surprised that you haven't been because I feel like it's, it is kind of like a like a ladies' thing. I mean, not that it has to be by any means, nor should it be, but it is sort of something that you know it tends to be women. Not always, but it tends to be women having these little businesses. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be them inviting their girlfriends over. It, it doesn't have... I mean, sometimes the companies lend themselves to it. Tofu Glow as beauty products certainly lends itself mm -hmm. to a female client base and sales base. But um, I know men that have worked in that arena as well. 
Cutco Knives is a very gendered MLM the other way. I guess so, but the only person I ever knew, people I've ever known who sold Cutco Knives were women, too. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, but you've not... Do they have parties? I don't think so. I mean, a knife party doesn't sound... To, well, I mean, you can, like, use them to cut up cheeses. And, is Cutco an MLM? My underst- I've always thought of it as a pyramid scheme. I mean, it's quality products, but it is a... Yeah, I guess both things can be true. The question of the MLMs is, like, how do the people that are doing the selling of the product fit into the scheme? But yeah, I've been to... There was some kind of candle one. Multiple Mary Kays. Like, nail wraps. Anyway, this is not important, but there, I've been to so many. Tupperware. Is this in, in the 90s in Indiana? Uh, some, but not all. Some of them were in the the 21st century. So Aaron Dallas and and playing soccer, I think as a fan, you read this book and you're like, okay, yeah, this is about this great athlete, all well and good. But the the understanding of how the game actually works is extremely limited. And the vocabulary she uses to describe his playing. Um, so, of course, for me, it was like, I would like to read this where there are several pages describing the game itself and how it flows. But instead, <laughs> she, just, she just starts the paragraph, and the team emerged victorious with Aaron Dallas scoring goals. Yeah, there aren't really any details about like what position people are playing. Who the other players are, what their roles are. Right. But I think that one of the things that, if it's not on purpose, is... I don't know, it could be on purpose, but there's this big, this weird thing of... The initial moment where Aaron gets so mad is such an everyday thing. You know, like any sport that you watch where fouls are called, which is most sports, or mm-hmm. like outs are called. The, we watch on TV, we watch the players get mad. We watch them get really mad. Oh, and the coaches get even madder. It, yeah, so that's that's normal, especially during actual important gameplay. In practice, it's a different thing, right? Like the stakes are so low. But I do think it can be, I mean, it is kind of a emotionally charged... Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even like testosterone fueled kind of situation where you could see like an outburst, but to escalate it to the point of I'm going to punch my teammate or I'm still going to be mad about this hours later is just seems wild to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, practice is somewhere where your competitive streak can really come out because it's the space where you are proving yourself. Yeah, I guess that's true. And and in games are something you really have to manage. Because if he did that in the game, he would be sent off. That's true. Immediately. In practice, well, you can, I guess, get away with that, depending on how your coach disciplines his players. Because it's an internal matter, as opposed to a third-party arbiter. If this book were coming out in the 21st century, I think that that the writer could write about, like, yellow cards and stuff like that, and, and, and uh, the readers would understand it. Even, like, little girl readers. Yeah. Would understand what that means. Yes. Or, well, or they could explain it. The, the American public's knowledge about the game of soccer has increased dramatically since the 1980s. Yeah. yeah. It's still, even though, I don't know, I, was, I don't know how you feel. I was conflicted at the end of the book about Aaron being allowed to play. Because on the one hand, you, are, you feel so proud of him for having come to terms with his problem. But on the other hand... 
he has punched two people at his high school that are both teammates on his soccer team. Like, the first punched person should have gotten him probably expelled. <laughs> not, just, <laughs> not just suspended from the team for a couple days, but... And not just kicked off the team or, you know, suspended from the big game or any of that oh. stuff. Expelled. Mm -hmm. But instead, he's just allowed to go on... But, you know, I th I on think, his word that he's trying to change. I think the justification there is that he... Well, yeah, that he... Oh, no, no, the justification is that this is the thing that he loves doing. That's true. We didn't really get into that. And if, he, you, if you deny him that, things are going to be even more fucked up. And Coach Horner did want to sort of stick to his guns. And Mrs. Green kind of asked Coach Horner, I think it would really be great to give Aaron one more chance to prove that he really is as good as his word here. He hadn't really shown any contrition in the past. This is the first time he's shown any sense that something needs to change at all, mm -hmm. let alone a sign that he is dedicated to changing something. Yeah. And that the act of being on the soccer team at all will be healing for him. Um, because... I think it's just kind of a coincidence that it's the only thing that we really see him get mad about. Because it's just like, that's his life right now. So that's the only thing he does, he has to get mad about. Yeah. But yeah, I, th I think that the, I, I feel that it's fine that he got to play because they made it clear that this was about giving him a chance and, and proving him to be a good guy rather than, hey, let's throw everything under the rug so we can win this game at all costs. Yeah. And it's not like everybody at school didn't know what happened. Both with, like, everybody knew, the book describes that everybody knew what happened between Aaron and Jeffrey, like, instantly. And it, and Jeffrey wasn't even talking about that, but it was, like, out on the lawn where everybody could see. So. Think things still spread like wildfire even before a social media age. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's so true. Well, Sam, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Uh, you're just very thoughtful as always. <laughs> thank you for sharing your soccer knowledge and your arcane knowledge of um, sports writing in the UK. And thank you for your creativity and putting this on and for facilitating what I think has been a productive discussion. <laughs> Speaking of arcane <laughs> knowledge... Oh, thank you, Sam. You're, I think you're the first guest to put it so eloquently. <laughs> Listeners, tune in next week to find out about Julie and Joanna Porter and who they are, for, for, among other things. <laughs> Bye. We can pretend that we're we're back at Millie's having breakfast. Okay. Talking about gentrification. Well, we are having a, a beer, so. Indeed. That changes everything. Yes. Ugh. Okay. <laughs>